0: Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Ben, for leading us in worship of the Lord. Let's continue to do that uh, through the study of God's Word. Uh, I want to invite you, if you've got a Bible, to turn to the passage that was just read, uh, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, depending on what your Bible says, uh, chapter 6. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 6, verse 4, through chapter 8, verse 4. If you are Uh, new to IDC or just visiting, this might be a a weird series to to kind of jump in and and experience IDC for the first time, Um, but we are uh, committed to preaching through books of the Bible, convinced that this is God's Word for us, and so we just want to take everything that the Lord has given us. We want to study it, and we want to preach it, and we want to sit under it and apply it to our lives. Um, We have uh, been, as we've walked through this book, been on a, a kind of journey with this couple, uh, a man and his bride. And uh, they are, uh, throughout various times throughout the, the text, they've been pursuing marriage or approaching marriage, longing for marriage, and uh, even separated, prevented from uh, 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 enjoying one another and actually consumm- consummating their marriage, and yet uh, what we find ourselves today in is the text right after they've been they've been kind of reunited. They've come back together, uh, and the text that we're going to look at today is all about the intimacy that they share as a couple. Uh, in, in uh, the Lord's providence, and, and they are able to come back together and enjoy one another uh, as is appropriate in marriage. And that means this could get weird. Uh, it could get weird. Uh, it's certainly going to be weird for me. It could be weird for you. And Tony looked at this text, and he just said, um, I'm not doing that. And, and then and he said, you know who the perfect person would be is... Is the guy who doesn't like to hug people. Uh, (laughs) Let's talk about intimacy. Um, We're gonna push through this together, okay? Uh, We are we are in this uh, uh, together, and we are going to uh, we're we're gonna glean good stuff from the Bible today. Um, What this text does tell us, though, um, is it's what it is is it's a picture of of intimacy. It's a picture of intimacy in the context of a uh, a covenantal marriage relationship where a man and woman get to enjoy one another. Um, But as we've mentioned throughout our study, we should never stop when we're reading the Song of Songs uh, at simply the kind of obvious surface level application of here is a picture of marriage. Um, Because uh, throughout the song, we've seen how the marriage itself is pointing, uh, it's not really the point. It's not really the main thing. What it is, what the, the song is doing is it's using marriage to point not. Yes, let's consider healthy marriage. Let's consider consider what it looks like for man and wife to relate to one another in a healthy way. But let's actually let it point through marriage unto the Lord himself and his love for us and his work to rescue and redeem a bride for himself. And so when we talk about something like intimacy, we are, we are going to talk about physical sexual intimacy in the context of marriage, but we need to even let that uh, kind of point through the, the physical act of intimacy to our more basic human need for intimacy that is given to us as image bearers. We can look at the very beginning of the Bible and see that, that intimacy is something that God baked into his very creation. When God created man and woman, he created them, uh, and and kind of the the summary statement he said in the garden in Genesis chapter one, uh, one through three really, is that the man and the woman were both naked and they were not ashamed. They knew each other in an unbridled way and there was no shame there. It was a good thing. But the intimacy wasn't just between the man and the woman. There was intimacy between man and God as well. Man would... Uh, Adam and Eve would walk with God through the garden and enjoy this sweet communion with him. We see how integral this was to God's created design because when sin entered the world, when rebellion entered the world, you know what it disrupted? Intimacy. Every layer of intimacy that the human beings ought to have enjoyed was fractured because of sin. Man and woman all of a sudden became aware that they were naked and they covered themselves up in shame. Man and woman who used to walk with God through, in the garden in just absolute harmony, you know what they did? They hid from God. He had to come look for them even man and woman towards one another in the curses in Genesis 3, uh, instead of the harmony and the intimacy that was by God's design, they began to, to turn against one another, and there would be friction between the man and the woman, and even the man uh, and the ground that he came from, he had to work it, and it was going to have thorns and thistles. All manner of harmony and intimacy was, was fractured, and so as we look at this particular aspect of intimacy that is meant to be experienced and enjoyed in the context of a covenantal marriage we ought to also realize that this is this is pointing us towards God's redemption and restoration of all things to where when when we are when we are invited into a kind of renewed intimacy it is not just man and woman in marriage but it is actually a picture in some ways of what the church gets to experience with one another when we are redeemed by Christ and brought into a new family we get to find a people in which our burdens are carried by others. Our brokenness is not a shock to anybody, but there are people who say, you're broken, I'm broken too, but you know what? God has done something about that. And we get to walk together in his family. The message of the gospel itself is that we are headed to a new city where that brokenness is undone, and, and we will be able to see God face to face. Intimacy restored. Intimacy restored. And so let's dig into this text that certainly is framed as intimacy between a man and his wife, but let's also keep in mind that by means of the message of the gospel, God is, is using this to point us forward to himself and to enjoy the kind of restored and renewed communion with him and with one another and with all creation that can only come through Jesus Christ. I want to frame this in terms of intimacy. It's a big text, 6-4 through 8-4, and so we're going to have to clump some things together. But there's a narrative kind of flow to this passage today. It's not just uh, them looking at each other, staring in one another's eyes, and ogling one another. There is some of that, and it will be something that we have to power through. But there is also some drama that happens throughout. And so let's look at kind of this first phase uh, of intimacy being initiated. If you look, uh, if you got your Bible, it's not even going to be on the screen. You can look back up. We finished last week with uh, uh, chapter six, verses two and three, where the man and the woman find themselves in this this garden of love. They are now finally restored to one another. And uh, in verse two it says, "My beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies." It's evocative, metaphorical language that says this is what they've been waiting for. They are united in this garden of love, and they're are going to be enjoying each other. I think more or less that the rest of our text is is kind of the drama that happens in that garden of love. And so what happens first when they're in that garden of love is that the man begins to initiate with his wife. He begins to pursue her by praising her. He showers on her this montage of kind of effusive Praise. He wants to woo her. They're there, they're there, together, they're united, but he has to, he doesn't have to, but he desires to continue to, to praise her and delight in her. And this is instructive, again, on a basic level when we're talking about romantic relationships. If you find yourselves, you know, you, you've been working really hard uh, to, 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 you know, find the girl and woo her and get the ring and marriage and then boom, you're married. If, if all of a sudden the wooing stops you, missed something. And we're going to talk more about that in just a second, but it it betrays an angle to which uh, it it suggests the idea that all of the wooing was to get something. This picture is a man who delights in his wife, who enjoys her and is smitten with her, and so she is described here with these uh, kind of in the, the verse four with kind of a couple of, of similes to kind of capture the various features that, that he appreciates about her. Her beauty, her loveliness, her awesomeness. She is beautiful as Terza, my love, uh, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army of banners this is the first of three times that the man is going to kind of summarize his thinking and his feeling towards her in just this this description of of her beauty and her awesomeness you can see it again in verse 10 if you look down those who look down or sorry who is this who looks down like the dawn beautiful as the moon bright as the sun awesome as an army of banners, and then again, you can, uh, if you just want to glance over verse 6 of chapter 7, he again just simply states, declares, she is beautiful, pleasant, and in her are many delights. The use of comparison here uh, is meant to capture something beyond the simple idea of her beauty. She's not just beautiful, she's beautiful as Terza. She's lovely as Jerusalem. Throughout this passage, the author, it's poetry. He's using language to evoke from the readers and from the listeners not simple concepts of beautiful or good, but to say this, it it affects him in particular ways, for someone who was a devoted uh, Israelite, comparing someone as lovely as Jerusalem was comparing them to the very seat of their civilization, the very representation of God's love for his people and his presence with his people. And he says, when I look at you, I think of, of Jerusalem. There's a comparison there. The the effect you have on me is resonant with the way that I think about Jerusalem. You can really imagine this when you think about her being awesome as an army with banners. Okay, this is not like, like a, a, a 90s surfer guy being like, she's awesome or anything like that. What he's saying is she has the effect on him that if he was standing before an army that's got its flags waved, its guns drawn, its drums beating, how do you think you would feel if you were standing before that army? Would you just be in like casually walking along the way? No, there would be a sense of intimidation a sense of heaviness, a sense of gravity. He says, when I interact with you, that feeling that I get, it affects me. He's trying to say more than just, you are awesome. He's trying to say, like, you give me the warm fuzzies, okay? You affect me. The butterflies in my stomach are still there, and so squeezed in between these bookends of her beauty and her awesomeness, we really have two primary ideas that the man develops uh, as he uh, showers her with praise. The first is he wants to highlight certain characteristics of her, each of them with a comparison that, again, draws out the sense of effect or what he finds lovely about her. Ooh, um, I bring me that water. That'd be great. Um, she... Yep. (laughs) Rookie mistake. I was thinking about my wife and the warm fuzzies she gives me and I get caught in mouth and everything. (laughs) She's not here. (laughs) And I couldn't do that in the first service. He starts to draw out these features that he delights in her. They all focus on her head. You can see them as you look through the passage there. He he highlights her her eyes, her hair, her teeth, her cheeks. In verses 5 through 7, each of these is not just, uh, hey, nice eyes or nice teeth, but he compares them to something. And I'm not really going to go into any detail because there's actually a lot of overlap with chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, that we've already studied in this uh, in this book. And so you can just go back look there as far as what's going on with each of these comparisons. But I do want to highlight verse 5, where the man again uh, uh, speaks to the, the effect that she, uh, she has on him. He says, Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. This man is enraptured. He's caught up in her beauty, and he's overwhelmed with her loveliness. He wants to praise her in all that she is, for all that she does to him and for him. And it leads to the second idea that he wants to capture, which is in verses 8 and 9, and that is her utter uniqueness. He, he, he wants to highlight that she is one of a kind. This speaker, it's, it's called the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, uh, but the, the book even, identi- it wants us to think about this man uh, and, and kind of have Solomon in our mind. Whether or not the man is Solomon is really irrelevant. But it is pretty interesting that in order to uh, accentuate her uniqueness, he says, there are 60 queens and there are 80 con- concubines and you stand out among them all. Well, what we know about Solomon is the man had lots of queens and he had lots of concubines. So he knew what he was talking about when he said, you stand out, you are unique, you are one of a kind. Now, as a practical matter, I have questions about the wisdom of bringing in your other lovers to highlight and, and uh, kind of accentuate the, the beauty of this one. I don't think that's something you want to copy and paste in your own love light life, but you do get the idea. He's drawing on, he's kind of putting her against the backdrop, almost like when you go into a jewelry store and they've got a diamond and it's up against the black velvet or something to make it kind of pop. He's saying, there are all kinds of other ladies out there. You shine you distinct from them, you stand out not only was she distinct from the many, she was unique in her origin. She was the only one of her mother. She was, she was one of a kind in, in every way. And because she was so special, she deserved not just the praise of this man, but also of the young women and the queens and the concubines themselves. You see that in verse nine. Everyone is able to look in this woman and see her as beautiful. He is enraptured by this thing that he has. And so now, after a time of separation and drama and all that kind of stuff in passages that came before ours, they are now reunited. The man initiates this kind of intimacy and everything that they've been longing for, and everything seems perfect. But it's not. Just as intimacy is initiated, we see in the second section here that intimacy is threatened. The intimacy he is cultivating is interrupted in verses 11 through 13. Listen to what the text says. I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies. Here is the only section of the Song of Songs where she is identified in any kind of proper name. We don't really know if this is her name, or if this is a title, or if this is maybe just her place of origin, but she is identified here as the the Shulamite, and that is only the first of like four really weird things about this section. So the reality is, uh, you see those little like superscriptions above your, above your kind of each section where it's telling you like he, she, others, that kind of thing. Uh, those are, are not necessarily in the original text. And so they leave, they, they're kind of taking a best guess of like who is speaking at which part. And if you've got the ESV like I do, over that section it says who? She. she. It says she. I don't know that it massively changes the meaning of this text, but I'm actually inclined to think that the one who is speaking in verses 11, 12 is not her, but it's him. And the reason I think that is because the went down to the nut orchard is very similar to the, in verse one, my beloved has gone down to his garden. This is, in a sense, him reflecting on the idea that he entered into the garden, and what does it tell us that he is trying to do? He is trying to discover something. He's trying to find something out, He is trying to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. I think this is evocative language to try to say he's trying to figure, he went down into the garden to figure out is now the time for love? Is this the time that the man and the woman finally get to be united and to act out their love for one another? But verse 12 really presents a problem. Because in verse 4, this man, caught up in his desire, realizes he is not alone with the woman. There are others there. It's a hard verse to translate. Uh, Translators don't really agree on everything, but one thing they all know is there are chariots there. And chariots don't just appear, there's at least horses, but presumably people as well. And so now this man's got a problem. He is pursuing intimacy with his wife, and yet now there's competition for her. There are others who are trying to woo her. And so when in verse 13, it said that they say, Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. They are not wanting to do the same thing that he has been doing in terms of gazing on her beauty and appreciating what she is and how she makes uh, him feel. They are wanting to insert themselves into this relationship. There are always dangers, the danger of intruders in a relationship. Even if the man and the woman are committed to one another, this is an outside party who are inserting themselves in and trying to, trying to draw her away, trying to wiggle their way in and drive a wedge between them. And how does this man respond? On verse 13, the second half, he says, Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? Let me tell you what that means. Uh, get out of here. Go away. Go away you're not welcome here but he's not he's not being possessive he's not really being territorial what he's doing is he's being protective he loves this woman and he is ready to protect her from danger He, in fact, sees how inappropriate it is that they are trying to insert themselves in their relationship, but he also sees how inappropriate it is the way they want to treat her. You know, right after he's just been pouring out praise of this woman, you know what they want to do? They want to ogle her, they want to objectify her, they want to use her for their own benefit. See, there are intruders in this garden who are inserting themselves, but they are not just competition to see who can love her best. One of them is interested in loving her for who she is, pouring out his love on her because he is enraptured by her, and the other party is interested in wooing her, using her, and then disposing her. That's really what's going on here, right? Why why are you going to treat her like two armies would treat uh, if they're, they're facing one another, they're about to go into battle, and you know what they need before battle? A little entertainment. So they get a dance. Let's entertain ourselves before we actually go to battle. She is not Uh, The object of their affection. She is a tool for them to use. This, my friends, is a great picture of the contrast that exists between the pure like marital love that is being held out to us in the Song of Songs, especially insofar as it points us to the love that the Lord has for us and contrasting that with false loves that are at play all around us, especially, yes, in relation to uh, maybe somebody who's trying to insert themselves into a marriage, but also all manner of selfish loves that fall short of what God has poured out on us. Here's what I mean. Take something like, like abuse in marriage. Even in the context of a marriage, you can have this dichotomy at play where you enter, the couple enters into a marriage with promises of pouring out affection and love on one another for, for their sake. It is working for their good. But you know what an abusive marriage is? is? An abusive marriage is somebody who stepped into that promise and then instead of pouring out their love on the other person, they insist the other person pour out their love on me. The other person becomes a means of my gratification. It becomes a means of, of how I get my desires fulfilled rather than how I pour out my desire on you. Do you see the, the twisting that happens there? It's one of the reasons I think uh, abuse in marriage is so ugly and so twisted and so hostile to the gospel, because in the marriage relationship that is meant to picture forward what God has done in laying himself down for his bride, the man then uses, often the man uses the relationship for his own gain, even at great cost to them. It is a distortion of the picture of the gospel. And it's one of the reasons as a church we want to take something, even in the context of marriage, so seriously. Because it's wicked and it's twisted. And these these men right here are personifying that. Personifying the approach to love and even sexuality in a way that says, give me, give me, give me. Rather than the picture of love that is given to us in this man and the woman that says, let me pour out for you. Let me focus on you, not on me. And so this this marriage is threatened. The intimacy is threatened. There is an intruder in the garden, and the man notices the threat, and he responds appropriately by saying, you are not welcome here. You are not allowed to enter into this thing. And so he ramps up, at that point, he ramps up his pursuit of healthy, like, uh, godly intimacy with this woman, which pivots us into verse seven, or sorry, chapter seven, where he continues praising her, but it just like puts pours gasoline on it. The first verse, nine, nine verses of chapter 7, they kind of break into two sections. And I want you to see kind of how this develops, because wh- whereas before when he was praising her features, he was praising everything it was related to her head, her, her identity, what he could see and appreciate about her, now he's going to start at her feet and he's going to go all the way up. He's going uh, to highlight everything he can about her, and just show her how much she means to him in like, his affection and his delight in her. He says, "'How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine.'" Your belly is a heap of wheat enriched with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gates of bath Rebin. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks down towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. He says, what I began earlier, you hadn't heard anything yet. And once again, he uses all these metaphors. I'm not gonna go into them just for time purposes, but all these metaphors to try to draw out. He's not just saying, good job. He's saying, this is how awesome you are. In all that you are, I want you to recognize you are not just something to be used and discarded. You are something to be treasured and valued. But not just, not just treasured and valued in an observational way, but treasured and valued in an experiential way. See, this passage takes a pivot in verses six and seven, after summarizing again in verse six, how beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights, he, he lets her know, I don't just want to encourage you, I want to experience you. All of the things in verses seven through nine are are experiential elements of their relationship. He doesn't just notice things about her. He lets her know, I want to be kind of wrapped up with you and in you in this. He says, Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine and the, the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. Do you see how all of these things are not just to, be, just to be observed but to be experienced? He's telling her he doesn't just want to notice her. He wants her. He wants to enter into this experience with her. This is more than simple self-gratification. It is enjoyment of another person in a way that appreciates and values and treasures who they are. The other person is not meant to be used, but to be enjoyed. Contrast that with the intruders. Now, understandably, this is the part of the psalm where we all get the most uncomfortable and where we get the best jokes, But it's important important that we make a few few points here. And I want to camp out here just for for a second. We must resist a few things when we look at a passage like this. First, we need to resist over-spiritualizing physical intimacy in marriage. Here's what I mean by that. Part of image-bearing, part of being an image-bearer of God, is being embodied. And part of walking with God faithfully as an embodied soul is to glorify God with your body. I want to say that again. Part of you walking faithfully before God as an embodied soul is to glorify God with and in your body. And what the song is showing us is that in the context of a covenantal marriage relationship, glorifying God with your body can and should mean this kind of sexual mutual enjoyment with your bodies. And that's an important thing for some of you to hear because you grew up in context where anything having to do with sexuality was just treated as taboo and maybe sick and gross and maybe pagan. And I want you to know that what the song is holding out for us is a picture that you can glorify God with your body in sexual intimacy in the context of of a covenantal marriage. It is not dirty. It is not a distortion. It is not a concession to a pagan culture. It is part of God's good design. And we need, as Christians, we need to hold on to that. We cannot kind of fall farther and farther into uh, kind of one of two extremes, which is to just deify the body or to deny the body. We've got to recognize this is part of God's design, which leads us into uh, the second thing that we must be careful of. We must resist over-glorifying sexual intimacy in marriage. What the song is not telling us is that in order to be fully human, we have to experience this particular kind of physical intimacy. There are a number, there are any number of reasons that faithfulness to the Lord might not entail this manifestation of sexual intimacy. And friends, if that's where you're at in the Lord's providence, just know this does not mean you cannot live a full life, and it certainly does not mean that you cannot glorify your bo- uh, God in your body. What it means is glorifying God in your body as you walk with him looks different than it would in the context of covenantal marriage. There are any number of reasons that we can list. One, it might just be that it's not time for you yet, this is a theme throughout the song. If you look in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 4, this is where our text lands today. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is the third time in the song this phrase, or one very much like it, is said. It's a theme in the Song of Songs. Don't awaken love before it is time. Even this couple, they went down into the garden. Why? To figure out if it was time to discern whether or not this was the appropriate time for them to give themselves over to one another. And so you might be in a situation where, where the Lord has you in life, it's not time. It might, and for some couples or some people, not be possible to experience this kind of sexual fulfillment. Friends, I want to tell you, you are not less than human, and you can still glorify God with your body. It is still possible for you to please the Lord in how you submit your whole life under his lordship. It might be that for some of you, it's just not God's providential plan, at least not right now, After we do Song of Songs, we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7 has a lot about this. It says, everybody, in whatever stage of life you're in, you are to be faithful to the Lord in that thing. And it looks like different things. And so my single brothers and sisters, whether it's you're not yet married or maybe that you're no longer married, what being faithful to the Lord looks like for you is not enjoyment of sexual uh, uh, fulfillment in the context of marriage. But it does not mean you cannot experience fulfillment but that fulfillment is going to be found in devoting yourself to the Lord no matter where you're at. And I do not say that tritely as though it's easy or it's just, oh yeah, okay, we just got to, oh, fulfillment, okay. Like, I get that it's easier said than done, but we also want to recognize that this does not, this does not make us full. This kind of sexual intimacy, there's a way to over-glorify it that makes it the most important thing to being human. And that leads me to the last thing that I think we need to reckon with, and that is one, one reason we, we should not overglorify physical intimacy in marriage is because it's not forever. You know, Jesus is very clear about this when he's talking to the Sadducees. He said, "In the new kingdom, there's not going to be marriage or giving in marriage. We are going to one day be fully restored whole human beings, and marriage doesn't seem like it's a key part of that. How can that be possible? You are going to be more human than you've ever been if you are in Christ one day. And marriage will not be a part of that. And so do not over-glorify this kind of physical intimacy. Each of these scenarios and many more call us to find fulfillment, not in sexual intimacy, but ultimately in being faithful to Christ. And we must keep in mind that even sexual intimacy in marriage can be something that isn't necessarily pleasing to the Lord. Thirdly, we must resist oversimplifying physical intimacy in marriage. What I mean here is by making it just about physical intimacy. Even in marriage, we need to keep in mind that physical intimacy is pointing beyond itself. It's never simply about marriage and sex. It would really be a strange thing, wouldn't it? If we were reading the whole Old Testament, which we understand to be structured in such a way as to point us to our need for redemption in God's promises through the provision of a Messiah, everything about the Old Testament is pointing us to Christ. If you're new to IDC, just like, be aware. That's how we're approaching the Bible. It's all pointing us to Jesus. And it would be really strange if like, dropped in the middle of that narrative is like this like Christian Kama Sutra. Like, here's the mechanics of how you do this well. That would be strange, right? Even this text in its intimacy is pointing us beyond itself to the love that God has for his people and that he ultimately manifests in his son. You want to see, just think think about some parallels here. The man and the woman are in the garden. And while they are enjoying one another, intruders walk in. Does that sound like anything? Does it sound like the Garden of Eden? An intruder walks in, and what does the intruder try to do? Tries to split them up. He Tries to break the intimacy. He tries to distort it and turn them against one another, and the problem in the Bible is that he was successful. Does it look like this man was successful? This is pointing us to a man who is able to protect his wife who is able to fend off the intruder and is able in his faithfulness to her to protect her and to keep her for himself so that they can enjoy one another forever. This man is pointing us to the man, Jesus Christ. The one who in the garden was pointing, who was promised to crush the head of the serpent and to make all things right. That is what is going on in this scene of sexual fulfillment is a faithful man who lays himself down for his bride. This is the picture of the gospel for us. And so as he he pours himself out, focuses on her, he's not using her for his own gratification. He is loving her for her good. It points us to the one that we all need. And notice how our, our text concludes. When that intimacy is pursued by the faithful man, that intimacy is reciprocated by her. The very last line that I read a second ago, the first part of of verse nine, it says, and this is the man, your mouth is like the best wine. She picks up on the analogy and she says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. She says, I got your wine. I'm here for it. I see the way that you have loved me and she now is reciprocating and responding to him in an appropriate manner which is why she says I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So previously in our text I don't know if you noticed that it was the man who was going down to figure out if it was time for love. Verse 11 she says come my beloved let's go. Let's go down into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early into the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded whether the great blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. She says, now we're in this together. And when, when that happens, she says, there I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh, my beloved. This is a woman who has received the love, the care, the affection of her, of her bridegroom. And in response, she turns it back and enters in and entrusts herself, not to one who would use her and abuse her and discard her, but one who would receive her and delight in her and cherish her. And so she wants to enter all the way into it. She wants to give herself wholly over to him, which is why we get in verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 8, some frankly weird expressions of affection from her, okay? Oh, that you were like a brother to me. This just took a pivot, right? Um, but we need to keep in mind w- why. She, she tells us, why, why does she want him to be like a brother? It seems like what she's saying is that I want the kind of closeness, I want just to be as close to you as I possibly can be for as long as possible. I wish, it's, it's almost suggestive that she was, uh, that she's wishing they were twins. They could be in the womb together, they could be nursing together, they could have their whole lives wrapped up with one another. She's like, I want to be just with you and all the time sharing and experiencing everything with you she also says that if I found you outside I would kiss you and none would despise me again somewhat strange but in that culture she could would be able to show physical affection to her brother in a way that she couldn't even with her husband it just wouldn't have been appropriate she wants the kind of closeness that is unbridled it has no boundaries she can experience it all the time and so she says after this these kinds of expressions of saying how much that she wants to give herself over to him in response to her love she celebrates in verse 3 the left hand his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me whereas earlier it was only one of them now they are seeking it together why because she is responding to his covenantal love for her This is once again a rhythm that echoes the gospel itself, isn't it? We love because he first loved us. She is in a posture in a position where she loves because she's received love. And there's all kinds of implications there, practical applications for marriage if you are married, and I don't wanna take away from those, but I actually wanna highlight something different and I just want to acknowledge that, again, if you're new to whether Christianity or IDC, we don't talk about like, sexuality every week. Like This is not something we're obsessed with. What we do talk about every week is how we have been the recipients of God's unfailing love for us. We are not a group of people who've got it all figured out. We are a group of people who have had the love of God showered on us, even though we are undeserving of any mercy from him. And our response to receiving that love is to reciprocate, to respond in love to him. He initiates, we respond. That is the message of the gospel. And what that means for you, unbeliever, is that you are hearing this message of a God who loves you, even at great personal cost, great personal sacrifice, so much so that he sees you in your sin and he would send his love to take your sin on himself, to die the death that you deserve, to be buried and raised from the dead to defeat the death that you are destined for so that he could have you. That is the message that marriage points us to. That is the message that this whole Bible points us to is that the God of all things has poured out his love on you in Christ. And the invitation to you is respond. This woman responds by giving herself over entirely to her beloved, entrusting herself to him. And our plea with you this morning is that you would do the same. Is that you look at this God who does not want to use and abuse and discard, but he actually wants to pour his love out on you for your good that you would see that and experience it and delight in it and enjoy what this couple is getting to enjoy. This the freedom and the delight of being fully known, fully loved, fully valued, and fully kept. That is what is given to us in the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are faithful, that you have been good, and you have poured your love out for us. And God, we recognize that we are unworthy of your love and affection. God, but you are a good father. You are a faithful bridegroom. And even though Adam failed, you did not fail and you will not fail. And so as you pour out your love on us in Christ and remind us of what you've done for us, God, we just once again want to confess that we entrust ourselves to you. We want to delight in your delight in us and rest in your protection. God, may it be that, I just pray that anybody here uh, who doesn't know what it means to really trust you and all of your care and love, God, I pray that they would just be overwhelmed with their sense of need, but also overwhelmed with your sense, the, the offer of love that is available to them. In Jesus' name, amen.